This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. One of the things that I always experience during this this sort of off week between Christmas and New Year's, it's leftovers week, right? We have tons of leftovers in our house, like turkey, ham, we got like gravy, mashed potatoes, all the things. Lots of leftover desserts as well. I had two, two tiramisus at two separate Christmas dinners, got, you know, goodie bags taken home, all of this stuff in the fridge. There's no way I'm going to eat it all in a day or two, which means that a lot of it is probably going to go in the garbage or... Is it? How long are holiday leftovers good for? What holiday leftovers are good for the longest? What do we do with all of this? Because I know for me, I get in my head about this stuff. Like two days and I start to think I smell something even if I don't smell something. Here now to help us unpack all of this is microbiologist Jason Tetro, and he is a regular guest on the show, author, speaker. He knows all about this stuff. Welcome to the show, Jason. Thanks for being here. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be joining you. So uh, how do you feel about holiday leftovers? Is this a thing? Do you indulge? Oh, goodness. My fridge is already filled with leftovers. So, Okay. <laughs> you can't now, eat it. Well, you can't eat it all. You have to have, you have to put it in the, in the fridge for leftovers. Absolutely. Yeah. And oftentimes I find that the leftover meals, the things that you make, like turkey sandwiches, for one, mm-hmm. one of my favorite things, love having a turkey sandwich made out of the leftover turkey. But oh, yeah. I, I try to have a turkey sandwich for every meal, like in the, in the you know, immediate aftermath of Christmas, because I'm worried that the turkey is going to go bad after a couple mm-hmm. of days. What is your sort of rule of thumb for how long you can keep leftovers before you start, you know, throwing them out or there's a danger from eating them? Yeah. So, I mean, if you've got something that's been really well cooked and hasn't had a lot of handling, in other words, like a soup or something or, or something like that that's in the pot and you haven't taken it out, and the only time you're really disturbing it is just to for the ladle, then when that's in the fridge, it can probably last a good week or so. Um, but what ends up happening is that the more that you start manipulating it, and I'm talking about the turkey here, because as much as it would be fun to just, you know, take the turkey out of the um, oven and then just start, you know, chomping on it, we tend to manipulate it. And as a result of that, you have the introduction of air, you have the introduction of microbes and that type of thing. Is now you put it in the fridge to help it from, you know, to help prevent the growth, but it's eventually going to grow over time. Okay. So when you say like, my, th- does that stuff come off of like plates or is that from hands, utensil? Like that can be anything, right? Yeah, it, it's the air, it's your hands, it's the saliva, because, you know, people take that little nibble and then they put their fork back into it. I mean, the double dipping, that type of a thing. So you always have to assume that there's going to be some kind of contamination that is going to happen during the feeding process. And then when you're putting it into the fridge, most bacteria don't tend to grow very well at four degrees Celsius. So that's the reason why you're putting it there. But they will grow over time. And as a result, you'll start to notice either a bit of a sheen on the meat 
or you'll start to notice that it is going to have a little bit more of a, of a, of a different type of smell. Um, it's kind of like a meat fermentation smell because basically that's what's happening. Um, that's when you start thinking, okay, maybe I should be throwing this out. And normally a good rule of thumb is about three to four days. Um, when you're talking about vegetables and things like that, usually it's the fungus that's going to be coming, that's going to start growing first. So you're going to see little spots and then it's going to start growing a bit fuzzy. Um, when you start seeing those white or green or blue spots, it's probably good just to get rid of them. Okay. Now let's say that we're sitting on day four, maybe day five, and you open the Tupperware mm -hmm. and you know, you're, you're not really sure, but you decide, Hey, it's worth it. What, what, how bad is the risk? Yeah, that's the question is like, what, what could potentially happen if we eat leftovers that are past that line? Right. So the most likely thing that's going to happen is you're going to get some kind of bacterial overload and that's going to result in your gastrointestinal tract going, ooh, we don't like this, and then flooding your gastrointestinal tract with water to try and get rid of the bug, which eventually leads to diarrhea. So that's the first thing that can happen. There are, however, some bacteria that will grow and create toxins. Now, these toxins are not going to be deadly for the most part, but they can still make you feel really unhappy for several days, if not weeks. Um, this is where we talk about the, uh, the clostridiums and that type of thing. And if we're talking with infants, you know, something like a botulinum toxin can actually be deadly for them. So the reality is you really don't want to have any of these toxins. So if it's been, you know, in the fridge for more than four to five days, you're starting to risk that. Um, I should also note that if it's been out at room temperature and it has things like mayonnaise or jam or stuff like that, and it's been out for more than six hours, there's a good likelihood that Staphylococcus aureus could get in there and also produce a toxin, which makes you really unhappy for about 24 hours because you're basically using the toilet all the time. Right. Um, so the, the fact is, is, you know, after that amount of time, it's just better to throw it out because even if you cook it again, and we can talk about that in a second, it's not going to get rid of the toxin. Yeah, so you, that's where the yeah. Got it. Yeah, you anticipated my next question is what happens if I just put all this stuff back in the oven, you know, 400 yeah. degrees for a few minutes, uh, you know, cooking it, that doesn't kill off some of this bacteria. Oh no, it kills them all because if you bring it up to 71 degrees Celsius, it's back to being safe, right? So that's what you can do with soups. That's what you can do with meats. That's what you can do with vegetables. Now, granted, if you bring it back up to 71 degrees Celsius, it may turn into mush, but <laughs> at least, you know, it'll at least make it sure that the, the bacteria have been killed. Now, you want to leave it at 71 degrees Celsius for probably a good five to 10 minutes. So you've really got to heat it up and then you got to keep it heated for a, a significant period of time. And as I was saying, you know, that may reduce the quality of the food, but at least from a microbiological perspective, it's going to help. And again, as I just said earlier, it's not going to get rid of the toxins, so it may not be worth it in the first place. Okay. So what is your uh, safest, most favorable go-to meal? What's the easiest and safest thing for you? Yeah. So for me, it's always going to be that soup because I don't have to disturb it. Um, a butternut squash and plantain soup is quite possibly the best thing ever. Um, sometimes I'll make a turkey soup from the leftovers instead of just using the turkey itself for sandwiches and stuff like that. And then that way I get another week out of it. But if you, but for me, what I also like to do is I like to make sure that for the next three days, my dinner is literally the same dinner I had at Christmas. And then that way I know I'm getting the most out of my food. And that brings one more thing up before sort of go is the portions have to be respected so that you know how much to buy initially. 
because if you buy enough that it will be over in three days, there's nothing to worry about. Right. Yeah. Which is a great point. I mean, a lot of people deal with this. It's like, I want to have, I want to make sure that nobody is going to be for want. I want to have enough. I want to have enough for leftovers and they end up buying too much. And then yeah. you have leftovers for three days. Like hopefully we should be planning this so that after three days there is no more leftovers, but you know, that's sort of uh, best laid plans, right? Oftentimes exactly. we have too much and especially in the, you know, economy the inflation thing of food prices, all the things that are going on right yeah. now, who wants to be wasting food? So maybe that's why we sort of keep a lot of this stuff and like like you say turn it into soups how about this because this is one that comes up as well freezing mm -hmm. it oh we'll just freeze it and then it keeps for a long time yeah so if you actually freeze it right after you've used it okay then what's going to happen is it's going to essentially stop time but the minute that you thought time starts up again because you're not killing the bacteria per se, you're just putting them in a stasis. So in that sense, if you take it out, then you've got another three days and then you got to throw it out again. Now that's great for some things, but for a lot of people who think that, oh, well, if I just leave it here and then I can bring it out in about a week or so and I'll get another week out of it, no, you'll still only get three or four days. That That's the big sort of thing you have to remember. But theoretically, I could take, uh, you know, if I made a soup or uh, oh, yeah. essentially, ma you know, took turkey and, and put it in the freezer, could keep it for, I don't know, a month and then thaw oh, it yeah. out and still have three days to use it. Yeah, exactly. So once it's frozen, you can just leave it frozen for as long as you like. Um, it'll get stale over time. It'll probably grow crystals over time. But that, you know, again, it's not going to take away from the safety. And then when you've thought it, then like you said, you've got those three days. Fantastic. Jason Tetro is a microbiologist, author, and speaker, and uh, has some really great advice there on leftovers and staying healthy, because the last thing you want is to have this fantastic bye week between Christmas and New Year's, where, you know, we're supposed to be relaxing, and it's less relaxing because you're constantly running back and forth uh, to the bathroom. Thanks so much, Jason. Always great to talk with you and get a little bit of information. Such a pleasure. Take care. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome back to the Mike Smith Show. My name is Scott Schantz, filling in all week. And we're speaking with Handy Andy Barrar from HandyAndyMedia.com. He is a digital lifestyle and tech expert. We're recapping some of the biggest tech stories of 2023. Good morning, Andy. How's it going? I'm doing good, Scott. How are you? Yeah, good. Great to talk to you, man. Uh, one of the biggest stories of 2023 has to be chat GPT and artificial intelligence. Like we, we knew that this was coming, but chat GPT just dropped like a bomb. Yeah. I think uh, when we look back at 2023, it's going to be the year of artificial intelligence and most notably the year of chat GPT, because that was our first, you know, taste as, as just normal consumers of using artificial intelligence. Now chat GPT actually came out. It was released on November 30th, 2022. Um, but within two months, Scott, it became the fastest growing app in history, reaching 100 million monthly users by February. So uh, the, the thing that I don't think a lot of people realize is we were actually 
prompt engineers for ChatGPT because everybody was using it. So that AI actually got smarter by us using it. And then by March 14th, they released ChatGPT4, and that was their paid uh, ChatGPT, which was even smarter than the ChatGPT3 version that we were all using. So, you know, in just this, the, the first, I'd say, quarter of 2023, AI just kind of came out of nowhere and everybody started using it. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that it was it's like in the conversation. There was, I remember having a, a dinner with my parents and they hadn't, they hadn't like heard of it yet and trying to describe to them what it was and, and what it could do. And they kind of heard it and they were like, okay, so it sounds like a smarter version of Google. And I, I'm like, well, yes, but like it's getting smarter every time we use it. And yeah. I feel like that's an, like an oversimplification, you know, of, of AI. And, you know, we've heard AI as it relates to like, oh, an algorithm or yeah. th- those type of things. But Explain, if you can, how ChatGPT and, and like the future of AI and OpenAI and these things are, are different than just algorithm and search engine. Well, it, it's what they call generative AI. So it's creating new content um, based upon like a data set and the prompts that you give it. So not only can, and every student knows this, it can create an essay, you know, in a matter of seconds from like one sentence of a, of a prompt. But now, you know, you have Dolly, so you can create images. You're using AI now to create music. They will take an artist, say someone like, like that's passed away, like Johnny Cash, and use his voice and then mix it up and mash it up with a Taylor Swift song. So you could hear Johnny Cash singing Taylor Swift song. So, you know, as more and more people started to use it, they realized just how powerful it was. And companies, investors, namely Microsoft, this is a story that I... Uh, you know, really followed closely was in January of 2023, Microsoft made a huge investment in OpenAI because they want to compete against Google. And the way they want to do that is with the web browser, their Edge browser, because Scott, I'm sure you use, like myself, we used to all use Internet Explorer, you know, back in the day. Right. But it it was really slow and clunky. And then Firefox came out and then Google Chrome came yes. out. So we all migrated away. The brand of Internet Explorer was so bad that they decided we need to create a new browser with a new name. And so they called it the Edge browser. They came up with their own search engine, which they called Bing, but nobody was using it. So they made this huge investment in OpenAI because they wanted to take ChatGPT and integrate it into Bing and into the Edge browser to get people to migrate away from Google Chrome. So essentially, Microsoft was trying to get its sexy back by making that huge investment uh, in AI. Now, has it worked? I don't know still to this day, a lot of people who use exclusively the Edge browser, but it just shows how much competition and how much of these companies are now realizing. Like, I, like Scott, I go to all these startups in Vancouver, these startup meetups. Mm-hmm. Every single company has AI as part of their startup. It's just the big thing in tech, and it was in 2023, and it certainly will be moving forward in 2024. Oh, yeah. The way that companies are, you know, introducing AI and using AI, and like you mentioned the the education thing, and every student knows knows about it. Um, really, really quick anecdote. I love this meme, the Internet Explorer. It was like the meme that it was Internet Explorer, the number one browser for downloading other browsers. 
right? Because yeah. everyone, you'd open a new laptop and just you'd use it once to download Chrome or Firefox or whatever else you're using to to surf the internet, and that's that's so true. But yeah, I mean. Every company, it's like this is the thing. It it got adopted so quickly because we realized how efficient it is and how how much of a difference it's going to make. And then it sort of felt like, and this is just you know totally my opinion. I don't have any any um, evidence to back this up, but it felt like towards the end of the year, a lot of the talk around AI or at least ChatGPT kind of cooled off. Now, is that because we maybe reached the limit of it or people kind of got tired of it or people are scared of it or it just became so commonplace that we were less aware that everyone's talking about it because it's just kind of like the internet. Like we all just talk about it. It's normal. It's here and we're going to use it all the time. I I think it's all of the above, Scott. Uh, Those are all valid reasons of why people almost have that AI fatigue. I certainly do. You know, I'm I'm fatigued every day. That's all I hear about is AI and all these companies that are trying to use it. For example, even fast food chains like Wendy's is experimenting with generative AI assistant to its drive-through. So when you order fast food, you're going to have an AI assistant who's going to take your order. And they're looking to roll that out in 2024. So every major company is trying to utilize AI. We saw that story with Sports Illustrated where they created fake, fake reporters and, and tried to get away with it and got caught. That was a very, very bad look for them. But, you know, a lot of industries and I think a lot of people are wondering, am I going to lose my job? Is AI going to take away my job? And the unfortunate thing is, I think so. There's a lot of, of, of positions out there that could be replaced by AI. And the big question is, what are we going to do if AI is taking away all of our jobs? Are we all just going to become what the, they call prompt engineers, where your job is to prompt the AI to, to kind of create content. Um, And that's one of the hottest jobs in tech right now. You know, people are making six figures in doing that kind of job. But, you know, if you're a writer, like someone like myself, there's a website, Scott, that I write for. They want to start using AI. They want me to edit the AI content to make it sound more human. Wow. And and for me, I'm just like, why don't you just let me write it then? You know, if I have to take this content and try to make it, it might actually turn out to be more work on my end. But I haven't even seen what they're going to the, the rate card they're going to do to charge me for something like that. But it, it makes me think that, you know, even myself, somebody who follows tech, who writes about tech might be out of a job because of AI or I might just stick to uh, doing tech reviews because that's one thing AI won't be able to do. Right, for sure. And the thing is, like you say, if your job is to edit it, then the AI is learning where it's making mistakes. And eventually the job of editing it will become obsolete, right? Because the AI will learn yeah. to edit itself. Yeah. And, and they were like, well, we need you to add images to the blog, you know, uh, for the AI blogs. And, and it's only a matter of time where the AI will create that image and insert that image into that blog. And then I will be out of a job. So I, I'm a case support for a lot of people out there who are wondering, you know, what is AI? What's the future? What does the future of my job look like with AI? I'm right there with everybody. Um, and I talk to all of my other tech journalist friends. And I'm like, are, are you like, do you, do you, do you have trouble sleeping at night knowing all these advancements in AI? And many, many do. And so we have to really try to figure out what we're going to do in the future when a lot of these jobs are going to be replaced by artificial intelligence. Yeah. And there's also this sort of, cause we've had this conversation several times uh, throughout the year, this, th- and I'd love to know your opinion. There's this attitude that 
well, a lot of that is a bit fear mongery, and I'm not saying that that's what I think, but you know, we thought that when the internet was first introduced, yeah. right? Oh, kids are just going to be able to Google these answers, and the internet itself is going to take away all of these jobs and going to turn us all into mindless zombies. And of course, the world has just adapted, and it creates new jobs and stuff. So there is a lot of uh, negativity and pessimism around the future with AI. But is is that a guarantee? Like, will we also? Is there a way that we find you know a balance with this thing, like we have with we've done with everything else? Yeah, that's that's the important thing is like, you know, you have to come like, you know, are you coming with the glass half full or is it half empty? There are going to be a lot of new opportunities. Technology, there's always going to be innovations. We we just don't know because it's happening so fast. But the big issue that I I had with AI in 2023 was the fact that you have to understand AI is using data from the internet. It's scraping websites and to to get smarter and to get that data. But now you have companies like ChatGPT or OpenAI with ChatGPT4. It's a subscription. You have to pay. So you imagine if you're Reddit. You know, they closed their API because, AI, you know, artificial intelligence was scraping. ChatGPT was scraping everything on Reddit. And then they're creating a package that they are now selling to consumers. So Reddit closed down. If you want to use their API, which was free before, now you have to pay. The same thing with Twitter. They closed their API. A lot of universities, you know, sociology departments would use that data on Twitter to understand sentiment analysis of what people are talking about, but now they want to pay. So that was the consequence of all these AI companies. You know, 30% of the top 1,000 websites in the world have blocked the ChatGPT uh, web crawler from going into their into their website and, and scraping all that data. That was the big issue, and they, they should have had some type of good, you know, compensation for those companies, but they never did. And now they're just trying to run with this new, you know, package of artificial intelligent uh, programs and solutions without giving any kind of compensation to the websites that they scraped all that data from. Welcome back to the Mike Smith Show. I'm Scott Schantz filling in all week. We're speaking with Andy Barrar, handyandymedia.com. He's a digital and lifestyle tech expert. And we're talking about some of the big stories of the year. And Andy, I want to touch on this one because I, I absolutely did not think that Twitter changing their name to X would ever, ever stick. But I'm actually starting to hear people just refer to it as X now. And I'm yeah. shocked. Why are we giving in to this guy? Well, some people are, Scott. Yeah, yeah. Not me. I still call it Twitter. Me too. Um, now, the reason why he called it X is uh, Elon Musk had this idea of a website called X.com way back in like 1998, 99, even before he uh, founded PayPal. What he's trying to do with Twitter and one of the reasons why he purchased Twitter is he wants to create a super app. Now, there are super apps out there globally, but they're not popular in North America. The, the most notable example is WeChat. WeChat is like a social network. Uh, you, you People buy and sell things. They use it for payments in China. But what he wants to do is bring that and turn X, which is what well, formerly known as Twitter, into that kind of a super app. And so one of the reasons why he purchased Twitter is he gets that user base. So he thought it would accelerate this idea that he's been, you know, uh, formulating in his head for over two decades of creating a super app. So that was the, the idea. It's probably one of the worst branding ever, Scott. You know, <laughs> you know the letter X yeah. in the internet, you know, if you add two more, it, it has a completely different connotation. So I thought that was a really bad move. It doesn't really roll off the tongue very well. And a lot of people are just, you know, familiar with Twitter. That was a 17-year-old brand that he pretty much dropped 
but it's all in this ambition of his to create a super app. But one thing that I've, I've noticed in North America and people's online habits is we like to have separate apps for different things. We don't like to have the all-encompassing app, but every company out there would love to have an all-encompassing app. The only example that we might have is Facebook because there's so many things in Facebook. You can buy and sell things. Of course, you can chat with your friends. They even have Facebook dating, but I don't know anyone that has found love on Facebook. And that just shows you an example of why super apps aren't very popular in North America. But Elon Musk has a $44 billion bet on that, that he can create that super app. And only time will tell if he actually succeeds. Yeah. And I, I mean, do you want to bet against the guy? He's been successful at a lot of things that he's put his hand to, but this year has not been good for him. You know, there's been a lot of political stuff. And then of course the, the Twitter thing. And, you know, I think people, a lot, this is, it's really interesting to hear about the WeChat thing because Twitter, yeah, when he purchased it, we all sort of had these ideas. Oh, what's he doing with it? You know, he wants to protect free speech or whatever you talk about. But like you mentioned, I suppose the idea is that if one company can keep you on their service as opposed to you going away and using a different service to to do research or make reservations or commerce, whatever. The longer they keep you using their services, the more money they make. And of course, that's what it's all about at the end of the day, right? Yes. And that's why um, Facebook, which is now meta, went all in on the metaverse because they're like, oh, salivating. Like we can create the new ecosystem where we can just keep people and we're going to own the metaverse because they don't own the Internet. They only own the Facebook website and the app. But that was the big kind of dream. But it didn't really work out. And now even Facebook is investing in stuff in like AI. But Elon Musk, you know, he's probably... The, the the biggest hindrance to creating X.com because the, the man's like the world's biggest troll. Yeah. And he cannot stop tweeting and he's alienating his advertisers, which was the primary way that Twitter made money. But he's also introduced a new thing, social media as a subscription service. So he took away the verified uh, blue check marks. And if you want one, you're going to have to pay $8 a month. And then your your tweets can get amplified. So if you have a lot of hot takes and you want a lot of people to see your tweets for $8 a month, now you can kind of spread your message to everybody. So you know, that was an interesting notion. Social media as a subscription service. Are people willing to pay for it? Now, some have been very vocal people, but the majority of people, the majority of Twitter users are not subscribers. So we'll have to see. It's a private company, so we don't have the data anymore, Scott, to see how he's doing. So we only have to go by his word or his uh, CEO, Linda Lacarino, uh, to see if uh, people are actually subscribing to X. Right. It's a very, very interesting thing. I look forward. One day, you know, we'll get a movie or a tell-all book about Elon Musk and his ordeal with Twitter and and what actually happens there. But it's definitely going to be something for us to watch in the future. Andy Barrar, Handy Andy media.com always great to talk with you man really do appreciate your insight on some of this stuff and uh yeah have a fantastic new year hey you too scott happy new year Good morning and welcome back to the Mike Smith Show. My name is Scott Schantz, filling in all week. One of the things that we're doing this week is recapping a lot of the big news, big stories of the last year, 2023. We talked about tech and chat GPT earlier. We've talked about some entertainment stuff. But how about some of the big blunders, you know, some of the big 
um, PR scandals and things that, you know, a lot of these companies wish that they could take back. And there have been a few of those this year. Here now to help us kind of recap some of that is Rachel Thexton. She's the owner of Thexton PR. Good morning, Rachel. How are you? Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Now, let's talk about 2023. Was this year um, different than other years? Like, was there more sort of like of these PR sort of gaffes or is it kind of, you know, par for the course in terms of uh, other years and how companies have sort of acted and behaved? You know, I think there have not been more cases of crises. I think the difference is that Canadians are less tolerant in these times. People are struggling financially, um, you know, a mental health crisis, substance challenge crisis happening. And so I think when there's a lot of challenges for the population, there's a lot less tolerance for, you know, brands who are not taking accountability and, you know, are not, you know, meeting their end of the the deal on on customer service and, and, and good communication and solid you know, followed relations with their consumers and stakeholders. Yeah. And in lots of cases, and I think a lot of us are thinking about um, some of the private companies, you know, the businesses that that we know about and have heard stories about. But this also applies to governments as well, right? I believe so. Yes. I mean, you know, we all pay taxes and I think healthcare is a great example of that. I mean, there is, you know, a certain level of expectation of care and I think in the healthcare government space, there's really been a breakdown of trust and confidence in, in what our healthcare system can offer us as Canadians. And I think that has really changed. The confidence was quite high. It's been deteriorating um, since COVID. And I think, you know, communications could have not you know, change that completely, but it certainly could have improved it. Yeah. And I mean, we're talking about how for years, you know, I, like many other people have sort of regarded our healthcare system as superior to the American healthcare system. We don't pay. They do. It can have massive effects on a person's life if they have, you know, have need to have surgery and can't afford it. And yet people here in Canada have been traveling to the States for healthcare because our system hasn't been sufficient for them. Exactly. I mean, I think there is a concern when you see, you know, repeated cancellations on sometimes life-saving surgeries being sent to the U.S. for care. I mean, I think it's good that the government is, is making sure that some of those surgeries are happening, you know, the ones that are vital. But when that kind of thing is happening, we know that we need to be making some huge changes. And I think there needs to be a lot more open dialogue with the Canadian population as to how we're going to fix this thing. It's kind of been peppered in and little, you know, mixes. They've spoken a little bit about, the government's spoken about fast tracking from other countries, medical professionals to improve the staffing uh, shortage. But we need, you know, solid communication, you know, a team, a new team put together, you know, some type of concrete piece of, you know, solutions-oriented communication that's going to be consistently provided to the public with updates. Yeah, okay. What are some of the other big PR stories that stick out to you from the past year? Well, I think Loblaws is definitely one. I mean, their their negative attention seemed to be endless. And I describe this in the Daily Hive column that I drafted is that, you know, this started last year with their price freeze, which was initially supposed to be a positive kind of PR promotion in, in freezing the prices on their no-name products. Um, and when that ended, you know, the population was not happy with that. The economy was continued to, you know, be in a, in a tough spot. 
And so, you know, the communications throughout the year was just not good. And, and when I say not good, I mean, there really was no accountability. That is what Canadians are looking for when they are feeling as though they're struggling. This is not right. We are not having the service that we or product that we deserve. Um, they're looking for the company to take accountability. And that did not happen with Loblaws in various cases throughout the year. There's even a case in which Galen Weston came out of a, you know, a legal proceeding and referenced how much they lose on every breast of chicken they sell. So, you know, it really shows a lack of, you know, really empathizing and connecting with the Canadians who some are using the food bank for the first time ever, you know, so really kind of being on their level and, 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 empathizing with where they are and um, and recognizing that. Yeah, absolutely. I know that, you know, he sort of had this, uh, Galen Weston had this kind of, you know, shine a decade ago or maybe, maybe even longer than that. And that has certainly come off. Uh, what other companies? Talk about some others that stick out to you. Yeah, well, Air, Air Canada is always a favorite yep, online. And when sure. I say that, I'm being facetious. Um, you know, it's customer service uh, seems to always be an issue for them. So there, there seems to be a, a culture uh, you know, something within the culture that's causing ongoing problems. And this year it was certainly, you know, extremely serious. In the case that, you know, those with physical disabilities were being treated, you know, horrifically. A uh, case of a BC man being, you know, having to drag himself off the plane and then other, um, you know, consumers coming forward, other travelers coming forward, talking about their horror stories with, you know, ventilators being unplugged or not being taken off the plane as they should be. And, you know, I think when Air Canada did respond well to this, they said this is not okay. They took accountability. They apologized. But it took several cases of media, such as yourself, you know, this is why media are vital, um, to shine the spotlight on these issues for them to come forward and finally take that accountability and make those changes. And now they've hired um, someone in the accessibility who's specifically responsible for accessibility and making sure that those things are done um, to the, you know, to the 10. So, but it shouldn't take a media spotlight for companies to make changes for those who have physical disabilities. It should happen um, immediately uh, when it's, uh, you know, when it's pointed out by a consumer. And I think that that's something that the, the public recognizes. There's multiple cases here uh, and the public just is, you know, really losing their confidence and trust once again in, in their Canada. Yeah. So when things like this happen, because these are big stories and, you know, they have a dramatic effect all across the country. Can a company like Air Canada or Loblaws get back in the good books and how do they do that? How long does it take? What do they do to do it? And do Canadian, does like, I mean, maybe we'll still using, use their services, but do, do they ever get back to the, to the, you know, pre-scandal level of trust? They can. It's a choice. So, I mean, I think that there is still a real lack of understanding and value that some companies put on PR and communications, to be honest. And, and really a part of that in what we encourage and what I would encourage as a crisis advisor is taking accountability. Don't underestimate Canadians in their willingness to forgive. You know, we all make mistakes. They need to come forward. They need to make changes. They need to tell the public specifically what changes are being made and they need to be significant changes a plan that is, you know, ongoing, uh, be transparent, uh, you know, always apologize when something comes up and make a change, see the action, walk the talk, 
so to speak, um, and really, you know, have a plan in place. You, you never know when something is going to happen, especially with, with a big company such as Air Canada or Loblaws. A crisis, unfortunately, will happen, and you need to have a plan in place that so that you can have, you know, the, the proper response, and that is immediate response, solutions-oriented response. So long-winded answer, sorry, is that, you know, they can come back, but they really do need to invest the time and the attention in having those conversations with Canadians, whether that be, you know, hiring, you know, a new team, hiring a new communications or, you know, a brand new marketing team, and really improving the way that they're communicating with Canadians. Rachel Thexton is the owner of Thexton PR, talking about some of the biggest PR scandals of 2023, touching on a few of the big ones. Of course, the Canadian government healthcare issue, a lot of people going to the states to get healthcare because the Canadian system not sufficient. Lob laws and uh, Galen Weston, you know, with the grocery prices, uh, that is big. And of course, Canadian t- uh, Air Canada having some issues as well. How do you feel about these things? Do, will if a company does something like this, will you ever trust them again? Do you actually change your habits? Like, is anyone not flying Air Canada or not shopping at Loblaws because of this? I'd love to know. 604-280-9898 is how you can get in touch with me. You can also text 331-BUZZ. That's the buzz line. Or you can email me, scott, at cknw.com. Thanks so much for being here, Rachel. Really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you, Scott. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.